Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 01, which is of the scriptures, of the Holy Scriptures, actually. And basically, um, we have been working our way through the paragraphs. We've gotten into uh, paragraph 8 and uh, paragraph um, 9. I'm sorry, we're still in 8. Yeah, we're in 8. We're going to move to 9. <laughs> But we're in 8, and we're working our way through some of the concepts that are in 8 and uh, some of the various um, doctrines that we see contained in this larger doctrine of the Scriptures. And we're working our way through uh, the doctrine of providential preservation of Scriptures. Now, um, providential preservation of Scriptures, which we began on last week, um, there's kind of like two places we could put this. So... We could put it here, where we did, uh, obviously, uh, which has to do with uh, some of the major doctrines of the Scripture and how the translations themselves uh, were important. And this is all part of paragraph 8, which uh, our outline calls its availability. Um, or we could put it a little bit later in that paragraph where it talks about the translations. Because the doctrine of plenary, uh, verbal plenary inspiration, which we talked about last week, and the doctrine of the providential preservation of Scripture, both have to do with uh, both God's uh, providing the availability of the Scripture to us, but it also has to do with the translations. Because, of course, if the Scriptures were written in an ancient tongue and no one understood the ancient tongue, then we don't have God's Word. So, you could put it in both places, and um, we're talking about it now. It's going to come up again, but when it does, we're just going to be—we're not going to review it all. We're just going to mention it. So you got to pay attention. That's what I'm saying <laughs> to this part. All right. So uh, last week we left off with the copying methods that were employed. Talked about those for a minute, and now we're just going to pick right back up in the middle of this where we were because we ran out of time, and that is to talk about. Uh, more about that copying process, or at least the way that the, uh, uh, the original manuscripts and everything were written. So here it is. Ancient books were written on papyrus, which is plant-based. Papyrus is plant-based. Up to about the 3rd or the 4th centuries. Or parchment, which is animal skin, by the way, until, uh, from the 4th century till about the 13th, 14th century. Now, parchment lasted obviously much longer. Some original parchment documents from the 3rd century exist today. We still have them. Uh, there are fragments of things, etc. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were parchment, um, but that was not the case during the time of the Apostles' writing. Parchment was really non-existent at that point. It was still papyrus. So the papyrus, by the way, um, as you can imagine, it de- deteriorates. So does, so does parchment, but the process that's usually used for parchment makes it last much longer. If you think about it, we've got documents from the 3rd century. I mean, this is a long time ago, right? Uh, I mean, 1,800 years, these documents are still actually existing. They haven't turned to dust or something like that. No papyrus documents, papyrus documents from that time period exist. Even those that may have been preserved some way back then, they deteriorated to the point they're gone. They have turned to dust. They're not existent anymore. So there was a transition to parchment because papyrus deteriorated quickly. With moisture, the only way to make a large document was to make it longer. Scrolls. So this is why they had scrolls, because the only way, you could, like, you couldn't take papyrus and fold it. 
You couldn't take papyrus and sew it together and make a volume. You couldn't do it. Parchment began to be produced in larger sheets, which were folded and sewn together into what was called a codex. So they would make a large parchment, they would fold it, and then sew the edge together so that it stayed folded. That was called a codex, right? In Latin, codex. Now, essentially that's a book. So you think today the process does vary, right, to some extent, because most, most of the time you think about a book, you think about all these cut pages, but that's not actually the way books are produced. If you've ever seen this, you know that books actually are produced the same way still today. They're large sheets of paper. They have multiple pages on them, both vertically and horizontally. They fold those pages, and then they cut the edges. So it looks like individual sheets, except for the folded page and usually the folded part, which is usually at the binding of the book. And so when you see book bindings come apart or something like that, you'll see that they're usually sewn together in such a way that these folded pieces are still connected. So it hasn't changed much in the process for how that happens. Now, can you have a book that doesn't have that? Absolutely. Most paperback books are not that way. Paperback books are individual sheets. They're glued, right? But hardback books are usually not that way. They're usually the other way, where they're actually folded pieces. All right. The church differentiated itself from the Jews, by the way. They were called the people of the scroll, the Jews, and the church was called the people of the book. See, this is what varied. So the Jews still held to scrolls, while the Christians, as this transition happened pretty, transition happened pretty quickly, became known as the people of the book. There was definitely a change in the way that you could produce them. Parchment, you could produce more, quicker. Papyrus took longer. Verbal inspiration and providential preservation helps us recognize translations that can be considered trustworthy, and we'll get into that later, possibly starting today. All right. The church can turn to the scriptures for, this is what the confession says, all controversies of religion and have a sure source. This is not a human source, which can be flawed and prejudiced, but God's holy word. And, of course, the reference here is to Isaiah 8.20, this particular portion of the confession. But as you can see, we have a whole lot of other passages there, which um, I will read some of. I'm not going to read them all, because there's a lot. But uh, let me just at least mention them as we go through. Uh, First of all, Isaiah 8.20. And that one is to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So here's Isaiah referencing that if someone is a believer... They should be referencing the words of God. Not, if they don't, then there is no light in them. Proverbs twenty-two nineteen through 21. That thy trust may be in the Lord, I have made known to thee this day, even to thee. Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee known the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that sendeth unto thee. Send unto thee. So, again, this is now uh, Solomon who is talking about the fact that he's written what God has told him so that people can refer to it. And this is the way all these passages are. Romans 15, 4, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 20, uh, Psalm 12, 6 and 7, Psalm 119, 89, Psalm 119, 160, Isaiah 48, uh, which is the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Uh, Matthew 5, 18, for Christ speaking, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law 
till all be fulfilled. Uh, Matthew 24, 35, and then 1 Peter 1, verses 23 through 25. So all those verses have to do with God's word and its availability to people and the fact that it will endure, that it will not pass away, and that's just a sampling. There are a lot of verses, but there are more than that, many more than that, in God's Word. All right, so let's talk about objections um, to its preservation. So, um, first of all, let's recognize that today's attacks on Christianity, whether it's, you know, Richard Dawkins is like the easy guy, right, because he's made himself that, he's way out there are made as a basic attack on the scriptures themselves. So this, this is where he goes. He goes, when he talks about Christianity and there's no way this is real, Richard Dawkins, who is the science guy, right? He's the evolution guy. But when he talks about why Christianity is incorrect, it's because of the scripture. That's where he goes. He's completely bought into the Dan Brown thing of, well, you know, men just made this up, and Constantine burned all the rest of the true scripture, and you can't count its validity. All of that he goes right to because he knows that's where it lies. This is where it's at. If the scriptures are false, Christianity falls apart. If the scriptures are true, there's no other choice but Christianity. That's it. So that's where the attack goes. The unbeliever will say, you can't trust the scriptures. Atheists in particular make this objection because the scriptures are unreliable. I just said this. It's like I memorized it. Christianity falls apart. Some claim that the church changes scripture over time like that, and the church created a trinity. This is one of the things that they'll use as their argument. Muslims say scriptures were corrupted, and they must be examined in the light of the purity of the Quran. Now, isn't that ironic? How do they know the Quran isn't corrupted? They kind of have a problem there. Without going too far down into it, I mean, right now, I think we do another time, but the Quran, all copies but two of the Quran were burned. There was a Muslim leader who believed the Quran had been corrupted, and so he gathered all the copies of the Quran. It was illegal to anyone to have one. You are put to death if you had one. He burned them all, except for two copies he had, and then he had the rest produced from there. Okay, so how do we know that that guy actually copied them right? Didn't add his own flair. Didn't take out the parts he doesn't like. We don't know that. They don't know that. But it's ironic that they'll say that we have to check the validity of Scripture against this, which has far more ancient copies available than the Quran. The heresy of Gnosticism said that the first 40 days Christ taught his disciples have been withheld, but they, and they had his true teachings, in other words, secret knowledge. So that's why they believe in some other Gospels, Gospel of Thomas, some other things, where they say that this is what really reflects the first 40 days of Christ's teaching, and this is where really all his teaching was, the true teaching. Okay, well, that, that brings up a lot of questions, right? Like, first question would be, why didn't he teach those the rest of the time? Right? That would be a big question. Why wasn't that taught after the first 40 days? Like, they all got it the first 40 days? They didn't have any problems after the first 40 days? Kind of an issue there. But that's what they say. So, in other words, what they're saying is, is that, well, you might have the Bible, and it might be the Bible, but you don't have all the Bible. Right? There's more information that's, that's available that you don't have. The Marconian heresy said the Old Testament was invalid, Paul's writings were invalid, and the Synoptic Gospels were invalid. How many books are left when you go to that? Not very many. Now, ironically, I know someone here 
who believes that. Not this church. I'm saying here in Michigan that believes that. And he meets in a home church with a bunch of other people that believe that. They don't obviously identify themselves as Marconian. But what they'll say is, yeah, the Old Testament that we have is not really accurate. That's not truly the Old Testament, so we don't count that. Paul's writings are incorrect. They're not true gospel. They're not truly the word of God. And you can't really trust the gospels. So what do you got? Jude? Revelation? I mean, how many you got? It's not Acts? All right, so uh, you can see that people have all these things. Every one of these, what they have in common, of course, is they're trying to say that you can't trust the scripture that you have. You can't trust the Bible, right? That's, what they're, that's in the end, that's where they all are. All right. If parts of the scriptures are invalid, obviously, then what can we trust and how do we know? We would have nothing at all for every part of the scripture would be in question. Does this make sense? In other words, let me make sure you grasp this. This seems very simple, very basic. But we have a problem with this all the time. So what I'm saying is, if any of the scripture is in question, like if we have a question, like let's say that one of those groups that I just talked about were right. And we believed them. We found, we said, you know what? That is a problem. There is some problem with the scriptures they're pointing out. They can't be part of the word of God. They can't be correct because they're wrong. Okay, if that's true, then which parts are right? Is creation right? Is the flood right? Was there an Abraham? You know, there's no other proof, right? There's no other proof of Abraham. We don't have a grave of Abraham. We have tradition, right? That's interesting if you ask the Muslims how they know there's an Abraham. Because it's written in the Quran too, right? But how do they know? How do they? I mean, everybody that wrote the Quran, both Muhammad and all of his generals, they weren't around at the time period that Abraham was. So, how do we know that's true? You see what I'm saying? So, if there's any part of the scripture that are brought into question as being untrue, we have a significant problem. We have a significant problem because we don't know which parts are true or not true then, right? And this was the whole thing that Dan Brown was suggesting in the Da Vinci Code and that all these different heresies have suggested. And that is that there's some of the scripture that's not right or you're missing some. And if that's true, then you can't trust any other scripture. That's the problem, right? All right, so it's a big deal. In a nutshell, it's, it's a big deal. All right, so the necessity of its availability, and that is its translation. So the paragraph in the middle of it, it comes to the statement. But because these original tongues, which was the Hebrew, the Greek, and the Aramaic, are not known to all the people of God who might have a right unto them and an interest in Scripture. So right away, it begins by saying, before it even gets to the point of it being translated, translated, I said that kind of weird. At any rate, before it gets to that part, it says that here's the reasons why. We must individually and corporately as a church have access to the scriptures through a translation so that we can read it. All right, that's, that's what this is saying, because these, they, and the people of God have a right unto them and an interest in them. In other words, without access to the scriptures, we cannot know how to obey God. Is this a problem? It's a big problem. Of course, we use this all the time, don't we? How should we handle the situation? Let's see what the word of God says, right? It's our, it's our go-to. That's where we go. We go there. And we, we have to have a confidence that we can rely on it as being the word of God. We're not going to Nietzsche. We're not going to some philosopher. 
where we're trying to see what does he say we should do? What, what's Dr. Phil say we should do in this, in this case? Of course we wouldn't do that. Why? He's a man, flawed, like us, maybe more than us. I don't know. I'm just saying he is not God, doesn't claim to be. So obviously he doesn't have the answer to everything, but God's word does. God's word is our source. This is where we go. You say, well, I thought you already talked about this, that the word of God does not actually speak to everything in life. True, right? doesn't. Who brought a dish today for fellowship meal? Yeah, you could all raise your hand because I saw you all carrying stuff in. So, did you look up the recipe in the Bible? Well, no. So, it did not tell you that recipe. But, however, an aspect of your cooking was reflected in scriptures. Now you're thinking, okay, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Is that not Christ's words? So is it okay to take spoiled food and bake it into a dish that's going to make everybody at church sick? Not okay, right? (laughs) Not okay. Why? Well, because that would be sin. So does it speak to that? It does indirectly, but it does. Would you agree? Like you say, oh, man, I was mixing this in the bowl, and the bowl cracked. That's all right. I'll just pour it into another bowl, and we'll just keep going. No, there could be glass in there, right? Sorry, you got to start again. That's the way it works. So everything that we do does have an impact. Like when you drove here, you probably stopped at the stop sign right here by the intersection, right? Well, whose law is that for you to stop? Is it God's law for you to stop? No, it's man's law. But what's God say? Romans 13, submit to the higher powers. So you obeyed the traffic laws. You stopped at the stop sign. Now, if there wasn't a police officer there, I didn't see one. I don't know if you saw if there was one there when you were there. You might say, well, I'm just going to cruise right through this. There's no cop here. I'm not, there's no threat. I'm not going to get thrown in jail or get a ticket or something like that. It would just be a ticket. It wouldn't be thrown in jail. Anyway, you, you, you could have you thought that, right? But you didn't. Why? Because you were living as God would want you to live. You were obeying God and his word, right? Now, every single aspect is not covered in there. But there are principles, right? You with me on this? There's principles. All right. So it's important for us to have a translation that we can read so we can understand these things. So we can understand these things. Now, I, I wish that we were all much better at being sanctified. We're not. And so things that we should do as believers, we still don't do as believers. And things we, sh- we should do or shouldn't do, we do. This is still the case. But the reality is, is that God has particularly given us his word so that we can know how to behave. I mean, we should be going to his word to dictate how we behave, how we live our lives, how we interact, what we do in church, how we pray. All those things, that, that should be our goat, like, this is our default. We, we, and it's not. A lot of times. It's not. We come up with what we think is good, and then we do that. And if we're pressed, we'll try to find some place in Scripture where we can justify that. But the question is, where did that start? Did we start with the Scripture, and here's what Christ commanded the church? Or do we start with, this feels good? 
I'm not going to answer this. I'm just going to give you an example. The church having a food pantry. We don't have one, right? No. What do I mean by a food pantry? I mean, maybe we do have some food in a pantry. <laughs> but I mean a pantry of food that you give to people that need it. People that are in need, right? You've heard of this before. Methodist church in town has one, right? We don't have one. Now, are the churches the only ones that provide food to people in need? No, not even close. No. Lots of organizations do, and the government does, right? But lots of organizations provide food to people in need. Did those other organizations all start with the Scripture? No. They just did it because they felt like this would be a good thing for us to do for someone else that needs help. And we want to, philanthropists, we want to help some other people. That's where they're at. There's nothing wrong with having a food pantry and giving food to other people. Nothing at all. In fact, that would be loving your neighbor. Right? But you don't start by saying, I'm gonna, we're going to have a food pantry, and then try to find the justification in Scripture to have it. Do you see what I mean? You don't start that way. That's putting the cart before the horse. We could say, oh, it'd be good for us to fight this fight, give this gift, care for these people. We've got to start with what the Scripture says. Now, if you think it doesn't matter, then you don't believe in church discipline. Huh? I wish somebody every once in a while would make the faces that I imagine you make, because you don't make them. You're pretty, pretty stoic. I can't really tell. Church discipline. Why? What is the punishment for somebody who, does, who sins and doesn't repent? What was the church's? The church has two options. One is to drive them to repentance, and one is to mark them as non-believers. So the first one that drives them to repentance, what, are they, what happens? We call that excommunication. By the way, the confession calls it that. We don't usually use those words, but confession calls it that. But what does that mean? They are removed from what? Don't say membership. It's not membership. What? It's fellowship. That's what the scripture teaches, that they're removed from fellowship, right? Well, this is the big punishment, right? This is the big thing that's supposed to chastise them and want them to come back to the fold, to want to repent from that sin and bring them back in, is fellowship. So do you think fellowship's important? I mean, like if, if, if that's what is supposed to drive people to repent, then the fellowship ought to be pretty sweet. Otherwise, they don't care. Right? They don't care. So do you think it matters when we fellowship with other people? It, it does matter. It does matter. So, should we be fellowshipping with a lot of unbelievers? Oh, that brings up a question, right? So, somebody in the church commits a sin, they don't repent, remove them from fellowship, can't sit down and, and can't have them over for a visit, can't sit down and have a meal with them. But sinners who are always sinning, we could just have them over all the time. Hmm. We could fellowship with them all the time. Hmm. Is that? I'm not going to answer. I told you I wasn't going to answer the question. I'm not going to answer the question. But my point is, is that what God says about how we're to behave is not necessarily self-evident. We need his word to tell us. Right? 
obviously, we're a different place today, roughly 2,000 years after Christ, right? Maybe the apostles would have had a much better idea of how to deal with any kind of situation that happens in the church than we would. But they weren't perfect. They made mistakes. Remember Peter jumping up from the table when he was sitting there eating with the Gentiles and the Jews arrived? Right? This is Peter, right? He wasn't perfect. He didn't have it all right. He, too, needed to be chastised by Paul in that case, right? So we do need God's word. This should be where we go. This should be where our source of authority is. This should guide us in our life. This should mean more to us than it does. Can we just say that's true? It should mean more to us than it does. Okay. The warrant for its translation. So paragraph 8 continues. And are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. So we just talked about the church have a right unto it, an interest in the scripture, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. So believers obviously are commanded to read and search the scriptures. We see this. We're going to see it in a few verses. The apostolic church quoted the scriptures when sharing the gospel. We see that even in the works of the New Testament. But we know it's also true after the fact that this is what happened. Was the script, were the, by, the, by the way, did they use the scriptures exclusively? Did the, is all they did get up and quote the scripture? No, no. In fact, we don't see that anywhere. What we see is them quoting scripture and explaining it. Right? We see that. Think of Stephen. Right? What's Stephen do? Stephen gives those that were listening to him a history of the nation of Israel in terms of the Old Testament and what was written and how all things were pointing to the Messiah and then explains who Jesus was, that he is the Messiah, gives them the gospel, and gets them mad. Right? By the way, we don't know. Some, there might have been a lot of people that became believers that day. But that's not what we see in the story. We're focusing on what happened to Stephen there. But there could have been. We don't know that. At any rate. We see Paul, Mars Hill, right? Does, does Paul quote any scripture in Mars Hill? No, he doesn't. He quotes concepts, kind of like Branch was talking about on Wednesday night, right? Where it's like he's saying things that you see in the Old Testament, but he's not quoting them. He's just explaining the concepts. So, there is no place where you see them just using all Scripture. But they quote Scripture. Right? They quote Scripture. Well, today, how, if we didn't have it written down, how would we know what the Scripture was? That old telephone game, right? Except this is 2,000 years of telephone. How would we know what the original exact words were? Right? The New Testament church messed it up. The first century, they messed it up. And Paul had to send more letters to correct them. Because, like, he says, look, you've got this sin in your midst. You need to deal with this. So they deal with it. And then he says, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Too harsh. Second Corinthians. Back off a little bit. This is modern paraphrase. But that's what he says. You've done too much. 
That was too strong, too harsh. It wasn't grace. He told them to correct it. They did, but they went too far. They needed his word on how to correct that situation. 2,000 years later, you think we need less? <laughs> we need it. So this is why it's so important for us to be able to have access to them so that we can read and search them. Christ commanded that believers search the scriptures. How is a believer approved unto God as a workman that needed not to be ashamed by studying the scriptures? That's how. Is it because you're going to make all the right decisions and you're going to pick out what you should do and that should make God happy? No. You will make mistakes. Ask Nabihu. He thought, oh, you know what? God said we should use this incense in worship. Let's use a little more. And God struck him dead. Was it okay for him just to make it up and do what he thought without God telling him in his word that this is the way it was? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. All right, so we got three references here. Two are footnotes and then another. Obviously, you probably recognize the other already because <laughs> I just quoted it. Acts 15, 15. And to this agree the words of the prophet as it is written. Now, this is a quote of one of the apostles. I don't remember which one it is now. Making a quote of the Old Testament. They're quoting the scriptures. John 5, 39. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. This is Christ saying, look at the Old Testament scriptures and see what they say. They tell about me. 2 Timothy 2.15, study that show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing. End of the verse. No, the word of truth. God's word. God's word. So what are you to do as a believer? You are to study to show yourself approved by who? The elders? Your spouse? Your parents? No. God. God. So much so you shouldn't be ashamed. You know what that means? If you're not, you should be ashamed. Hmm. Hmm. In other words, if you're never studying the Word of God, you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed. Why? Because Christ commands you to. God commands you to. He commands you to. So you should be doing it. Don't be ashamed. Study. Are you going to get it perfect? No. Study. Study. All right. The extent of its translation. We're moving through this. Moving through pretty good. The extent of the translation. Paragraph 8 continues. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come. Now, I mentioned this before. Here it is, the, Webster, the Webster's uh, Dictionary definitions of the word vulgar. It is pertaining to the common, unlettered people as vulgar life, used or practiced by common people as vulgar sports, vernacular, national, common, used by all classes of people as the vulgar version of the scriptures. You don't see that in the Merriam-Webster's dictionary today. But you'll see that all four of these definitions about what's vulgar is talking about it's to common to all people. This is what, it's, this is what vulgar meant, common to all people. So... For instance, the Roman Catholic Church used scriptures that were written in Latin. Latin was not common to all people, right? In fact, hardly anyone knew Latin. 
So this point of the confession here is, is that that can't be the case. It has to be in the vulgar or the common tongue of the people. Right? They're not saying it has to be swear words. They're saying that's what we're thinking of. We think of vulgar. But they're talking about something that's it's rudimentary. It's basic. Does that make sense? It's basic. It's not that it's uh, somehow dirty or wrong or something like that. It's not in the mud. It's above the mud, but it's close. You see what I'm saying? It's the common language that everybody uses, vulgar. So that's what it's saying when it's talking about it being translated into the vulgar language of every nation in which they come. The Scripture's necessity, identity, authority, sufficiency, and preservation are all meaningless if they're not accessible to the common people in a common language. So all of those sub-doctrines, the necessity of scriptures, the identity of scriptures, the authority of scriptures, the sufficiency of scripture, the preservation of scripture, don't mean anything if you can't read it. Right? How is scripture sufficient for everything in your life if you don't know what it says? How about acting as the authority of scriptures? If you can't read it in your own language, you have no idea what the scripture says, how does it act as an authority? It can't. How do we know it's preserved? How do we know somebody didn't write it last year? Some versions were written last year. <laughs> because you can read it. Right? So this is important. Being translated into language is important. Now, obviously, there are some who've taken that so much to heart that they spend their entire life working in ministry to translate the scriptures. Right? We supported a missionary, the Abrams, and the Abrams were in Senegal. Okay, not sure. Remember? Okay, I don't know. But it was a foreign country. At any rate, they were ministering for us. They were ministering, it was home to the people that they're, anyway. They were ministering to a group of people that did not have a written language. And obviously did not have the scriptures. So their entire ministry, their entire career was spent developing a written language for this group, people group. Teaching them how to read and write in that language. And producing a book of scripture, the Bible, in that language. And we have a copy in our library that they gave to us because we were supporting them. 35 years working on that. Obviously, you're the Wycliffe Bible translators. That's what they do. Are there still people groups today that do not have the scriptures in their language? Yes, there are. There still are today. And obviously, getting people the scripture so that they can read the scripture is important. You, know, you think of Calzastro smuggling Bibles into China. Why? Because they won't allow Bibles into China. They won't allow it. So he would help get Bibles into China. Now, that all ended a long time ago. But you can see the need. The people needed the Scripture. People needed the Scripture. What was the most valuable thing to different groups, even in England? In England, when the Scriptures were being burned, when Wycliffe himself translated the scriptures and they burned all his Bibles that they could find, people would hide a page of scriptures in their house. A page. One page. Why? That's all they had. That's how precious it was to them. To know exactly what God said. Can you imagine if you had the generations 
from Numbers or from Genesis, and your chapter was all the generations of who begat who, that would not be a good way to have. You would want a different page probably so you could learn a little bit more. But you would really know well who begat who in that early time period. At any rate, that's half a joke right there. All right. So let's look at a couple verses. We'll actually look at these because it's a hop, skip, and a jump right through that chapter. 1 Corinthians 14, start with verse 6, and then we move on from there. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? In other words, he's addressing the Corinthians who are using tongues, except their tongues are gibberish. They're not foreign languages. And so here's what he says. Well, if I come to you with tongues, how is it going to do any good if I'm not doing one of these things? Verse 9, so likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easily, easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Verse 11, therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, that, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so, ye forasmuch as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Verse 24, but if all prophesy... And there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. Verse 28. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. What's he saying? He's saying that people need to be able to understand the message of God. If you, have a, you think you have a message of God, but nobody can understand it, it's not a message from God. All right. Did I hit the button a bunch? Yeah, I did. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. The purpose of its translation. All right, so the paragraph continues now. That the word of God, so it just talked about being translated into the vulgar language of the people. That the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So here's some purposes of this translation. There's three major reasons that are listed to study Scripture in this. First, that the Word may dwell in a believer plentifully. Right? Second, that the believer may worship God in an acceptable way. Third, that the believer may have hope through the patience and comfort of the Scripture. So you can see, interestingly enough, the middle one is really the outward one. Right? The third one is really internal for you. And the first one is kind of how your life is regulated. You can see this, right? So you say, well, man, I'm a Christian, but man, I messed up. So the word's in me, but I sinned. Okay, well then look at the word, because it's going to give you patience and comfort. Why? Because Paul's going to tell you how he sinned. Peter's going to show you how he sinned. You're going to see these examples of Believers who are not perfect, just like you. And that should give you comfort. Right? It should give you comfort. The study and learning of the Scriptures are not for one purpose, but for all three purposes at all times. So you can't say, well, we study the Scripture because we want to know how to worship God in an acceptable way. That's true, but that's not the only reason. Are you with me? Not the only reason. For the Word to dwell in a believer plentifully, he must study it digitally. Digitally, 
Digitally, no. Diligently. Obviously, uh, and I mean, I think this almost goes without saying, but we say it because I'm teaching a lesson here. Anyway, the, you're not going to know a lot about the scriptures unless you read a lot of the scriptures. Does that make sense? Like, because you read one page of, a, of an article about some scientific principle, you are not an expert on the scientific principle. You know very little about the scientific principle, right? And because you hear the scripture on Sunday morning, that does not mean that you understand it fully or well. That means you scratch the surface, barely scratch the surface, right? Okay, some verses. The footmark is 19, which is Colossians 3.16. But the additional verses that I have there are Romans 15.4, which is, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of scriptures may, might have hope. So you can see where the words come from, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And, of course, you know what that says, that we have access to the Scripture, right? Ephesians 1, 13, 17, and 18. I'm sorry, yeah, Ephesians 1, 13, 17, and 18. Whom ye also trusted, after that he heard the word of God, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So th this is just a great example. This is a passage that says, look, this is why you, you studying the scripture is important. You're going to have hope. You're not going to be as despondent as life wants to make you. All right. English translations. So we're still in its availability, paragraph 8. Now we're going to talk about, for a couple of weeks, English translations. First of all, the background. Well, we believe that God deliberately established the methods for the Scripture's dissemination and preservation. We've already talked about some of this, but now we're going to get into a little bit clearer. But we do believe that he established the methods for this to happen. God chose Hebrew for the Old Testament. It was a very specific and exact language. It's not full of ambiguities like other, many others of that day. Are you with me on this? That was Hebrew. Hebrew is a very specific language. There is, you know, if you hear a pastor talk about that this word can be used as this and it can be used as this, normally that's a New Testament word. That is not normally an Old Testament word. It's not normally the Hebrew. It is normally the Greek. Now, if you've studied some other languages before, if you've ever studied other languages, you know that there is many languages where that's true, right? It's also true in English, is it not? There's lots of words that we use that mean two different things. Two? Two. 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 That's an example, right? What's it, what am I, when if I say the word two, what do I mean? Two, 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 right? T-W-O, T-O, T-O-O, right? Or T-U, Latin. Anyway, the point is, et tu, Brute? That was, anyway, uh, Julius Caesar, that was a reference there. Uh, we 
have this in our own language. And it's true in Greek. Definitely true in Greek. So a lot of times, this is the difficulty of those who look at the Hebrew for scriptures, they have to look at what context is this word in and what does it mean. Most of the time, that's extremely easy. Most of the time, most of the words of the New Testament are not in a question. All right? Sometimes they are. Now, this becomes a point of contention, but we won't go to it yet because you'll see that there are those who will use that as saying the scriptures, you can't understand the scriptures, not accurate. All right. God chose Greek because it was the common trade language. It was understood by most of the Roman Empire and would facilitate a rapid dissemination of his word. I think we talked about this before. Could God have had the authors of the New Testament write in Hebrew? He could, but he didn't. He had them write in Greek. Why? This is why. This was the common trade language. It was understood by most of the Roman Empire. So it was much easier to spread the word of God in writing in Greek. In Greek. By the way, not the case during the Grecian Empire. The Greek Empire. Not the case. So in other words, if the music is playing, that means it's time for me to end. Uh, if God would have had Christ come during that time, or if the Gre Grecian Empire would have continued, right? They did not have as much of a spread across the world. Their kingdom, their empire, was much, much smaller than Rome. Rome was huge. And yet, what was the primary language of Rome? What was it? What did they use? Latin. Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. It was Latin. What did they use commonly? Latin and Greek. They used Greek. So even though they were a much larger empire, lasted much longer than the Greek Empire, they used Greek because everybody across their empire or most people across their empire understood. Did everyone? No, everyone didn't understand it. Like you think about the Romans in Britain. Those in Britain did not understand Greek. Okay? But most did. If we believe Scripture's necessity, identity, authority, sufficiency, and preservation, we must have an accurate record of what it says. So you see I quoted this a couple slides ago. Scripture's necessity, identity, authority, sufficiency, and preservation... Those are the key doctrines of Scripture. That's why I keep bringing them up. We have to have an accurate record of what it says. Like, how can the Scriptures be an authority if we don't have an accurate record of what it said? If it can mean whatever anybody wants it to mean, then we don't have the Scriptures. Now we've got people's opinions. There are over 18 English translations available today, and that is changing all the time, by the way. There are more than 18, but they're shifting. Because there are some translations that are no longer being printed. Interestingly enough, there are some that are no longer being printed. They not only differ in style, but in grammar and wording. Some verses are missing completely in some of these translations. Some verses are just gone. All are not equal, so all cannot be equally the word of God. Think about that for a second. If you have scriptures that change wording, so let's say, for instance, let's just make this up and just say, for instance, that you had a version of Scripture that eliminated the blood of Christ in many of its passages. Or they eliminated the, the reference of Christ saying that he was God. And we're going to see versions that show that, that do that. 
is that equally the word of God then? With one that says different? Do you see what I'm saying? It can't be. It cannot be. Now you say, well, this translation calls it a firmament, and this translation calls it a dome, which we're going to see that too, by the way. But this translation calls it the dome, and this one calls it a firmament. Not a good argument. Does dome and firmament mean two different things? Yeah, they actually do, right? But they didn't, they didn't take it out. They just changed it to mean something they thought people would understand instead of firmament. To dome. But if, you say, if Christ says, you know, I and my Father are one, and your translation doesn't say that verse, that verse is gone, do you have the Word of God if you have that version? Or was it added in the other one that you had that says that? Right, you see what I'm saying, right? It matters. It matters. That's, that's the point. It matters. If they're not all equal, they can't be the Word of God. What did he say? The selection of which English version to use cannot be a personal choice. It must be a version that is as close to God's original inspired words as possible. Now this is very interesting because I've heard this preached before. And this is a dangerous thing to say. You can't say which version of the Bible you use is a personal choice. No, you can't. That's incorrect. I choose to use the Mormon Bible. Is that okay? It matters. Because if you're going to say, I'm using this version as this is God's word as I understand it, well, you can't choose Dan Brown's, the Da Vinci Code, and say, this is my Bible. Okay, you can, but that's not the Bible. Right? So you can't say, well, yeah, I'll just use this version. It's just because that's the one I choose. I, I identify with this one. It's got pictures in it, whatever. I don't know. Let's say, you know, you like this one better. Well, it's not. You can't choose what's God's word. It either is God's word or it's not God's word. Does that make sense? You could say, well, I like this because it's big print and it's got the little thumb things for the books of the Bible. Okay, good. That's great. But that's not what matters, right? I mean, the large print thing may matter. <laughs> it may matter. Small print's hard. But what I'm saying is, is that you can't just say your personal choice means you can have whatever version you want to and somehow say that that's God's word. It may not be God's word. You could be missing God's word. In fact, your belief and your comfort and your hope and all these things, your worship, could be based on something false. Because it's not in there. It's not in God's word. He didn't say that. Or things that he said aren't in yours. Which, by the way, almost all versions that have a problem have things removed. They don't have things added. They have things removed. Now that in itself is telling. Why? So if you say, well, my Bible is missing that verse, and it's missing that verse, or you quoted this and it only had half of that verse, you better ask about your Bible. Better ask. Something's up. All right, we'll stop there. The standard defined for judging English Bible translations because we're out of time. So we'll pick back up there next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.